Evildoers boast. Evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict you. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and evildoers, evildoers, and they say, the Lord does not see evildoers. Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up against for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson for this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are reading verses 1 through 21 this morning. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that you might share the rule, we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. 
but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When, we're, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning in this difficult and long passage, in a very difficult moment for the apostle and for his church, we ask that your spirit would give us understanding and that you illumine our path and teach us what it means to walk with you, to not boast, and to take up worldly wisdom. We ask for your help. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several weeks ago, when Melissa and I were away, a friend had recommended that I read J.D. Vance's new memoir called Hillbilly Elegy. It's a wonderful book. I would encourage you to read it. It is uh, humorous, it is wise, and it's also disturbing. It's a memoir written by Vance about his childhood years of growing up in Appalachia, in the mountains of Kentucky and Ohio, along the Appalachian mountain chain. And he discusses the problems that plague his particular subculture that he comes from. It's written, as he says, to his people. One of the stories that he recounts was the reception of a special report done by ABC News. The report was about the health standards of children who belonged to the Appalachia area, the region. And there's one particular phenomena they focused on. It was called Mountain Dew Mouth. But children at a very young age were drinking copious amounts of Mountain Dew, and then that there was a huge problem that was emerging in that children were experiencing tremendous pain and their teeth were rotting. They had none because of the large amounts of the sugary soda that they drank. The community watched the report. It was widely watched by everyone who shared this heritage. And then it was rejected and viewed with scorn. Commenters to the ABC report said things like this. This has to be the most offensive thing I have ever heard, and you should all be ashamed. Another said, you should be ashamed of yourself for reinforcing old false stereotypes and not giving a more accurate picture of Appalachia. Now, when we look from the outside, we can easily ask, you know, why was that community so closed off to critique? 
Actually, the concern from the report was not just hearsay. It was based in scientific, social science research, problems that were emerging on a massive scale there in Appalachia. Why wouldn't they accept a word from the outside? Why were they so closed off? But when we honestly think about it, we know that this is just the way of human community and human culture, that we're all fairly slow to change. And when none of us really like a word from the outside, that if we are going to receive a critical word, we like to receive it from inside, from those that we already trust, from those who we believe are for us, and it comes from the outside, and we tend not to hear it very compassionately or sympathetically, and we don't think that it's for us. Insiders don't think outsiders understand, and we rather be loyal to those who are inside, even if they're wrong. When Paul arrives in 1 Corinthians 4, this is precisely what he's dealing with. He's an outsider. He's not a Corinthian. He's a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he tells us in other places in the New Testament. But he also became this church's father when he planted the gospel there in Corinth and saw people convert out of paganism to come to faith in Jesus. He has a special relationship to them. He's not a Corinthian, but he loves and cares for the Corinthians in an extreme way. He loves them so much that he dares to speak a word of correction, a word of contradiction, a word that conflicts with their current mode of operation. Several weeks ago, I shared with you the story of my mentor who promised me years ago, over a decade ago, he said, Chuck, my pledge to you is always to hug you around the neck and knee you in the groin. And that is exactly what Paul is here doing once again. With this Corinthian congregation, because he loves them, many people will look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 4 and just simply say, he is so mean and religious, and this is just what you would expect when you go to church. But actually, you need to note what Paul writes in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the role Paul plays here is that of loving mentor and father. He provides correction and reproof. He desires to do so inside of a construct of encouragement and discipline, giving admonishment. And if he needs to bring the rod, then he will, but he is working up to that because we have to remember that the entire frame of the letter so far, where Paul begins with this congregation, is he reminds them of who they are in Christ, that they are the saints of God who inhabit and dwell in Corinth, but they've been set apart by the work of God in Jesus Christ, something that God has done on their behalf. It's not something they work themselves into. God declares that they are right with Him, and therefore they're saints. And He reminds the Corinthians of who God is for them in Christ. And then because of who they are, because of God's work on their behalf, He also reminds them of their responsibilities of what it looks like to answer the grace of God in gratitude. And this is the portion of the letter that we're now set into, where Paul is addressing the Corinthians, and he's reminding them of these responsibilities. And there's one thing in particular 
that he wants them to avoid here in chapter 4. You find it in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And this is what Paul desires for the church to avoid, that we not go beyond what is written. And in Corinth, what was happening in the congregation is that they were going beyond what was written, and they were exceeding the gospel. Because what we found is that the captive, the congregation was captive to the broader culture, and the Corinthians had created their own syncretized version of the gospel, that they had brought in forms of Greco-Roman philosophy, specifically Cynic and Stoic philosophy. They imported those into the church and then melded it together with their beliefs in Jesus. The result was a deformed and compromised Christianity, especially when it came to very practical matters. And we find the whole letter is Paul addressing these practical matters, and then he arrives at the major one in chapter 15, where some were now denying the resurrection of Jesus. And so this was a big deal, and Paul wants them to avoid going beyond what is written. So what exactly does that look like? And there's three things that he develops here in chapter 4. The first thing, what it looks like to go beyond what it's written, is that we adopt superficial standards of evaluation. You notice in verse 3 what he says. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Many people hear these words and say, well, the Apostle Paul was just defensive and he wasn't willing to receive critique. And that's not exactly what's happening here. Paul rather knows that the Corinthians are so immature in their faith that they don't know how to judge a good ministry from a bad one. So he says it's a very small thing that you would judge me, that you would examine me, that you would scrutinize me. But that is indeed what was happening is they were examining and scrutinizing Paul and saying we want nothing to do with him, and evidently they were favoring Apollos, even though Apollos had nothing to do with that. And so they were judging Paul and passing a verdict on him, saying that he was not worthy of them. This was what was playing out here in Corinth. And Paul says it's no big deal that you're so infatuated with your philosophical mode of thinking and with your compromised Christianity that you don't know the real article from the fake article. And this is what he's just said to the leaders in chapter 3, is that they need to build in keeping with the foundation that has been laid because God will one day expose all of our deeds. And look what he says once again in, in verse 5. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In other words, inside of this boastful and arrogant congregation who was dividing things up and judging the Apostle Paul, he says, hey, slow down, don't pronounce a verdict, wait, because that's God's job and God's work and God's duty. And do you see what the Corinthians had done? They had usurped once again the ability to determine the left from the right, good from evil. And this has been the human problem since the very beginning. It's the thing that Adam's race committed themselves to when we decided to eat the fruit from the tree. It is human pride. 
And the Corinthians were all about it. They were all in on it. They were going for it, judging between Paul and Apollos. And they had very superficial standards that they had adopted in making those judgments. They were not gospel-based standards. They were not legitimate. And so Paul tries to temper them by reminding them that God is the one who judged. God gets to evaluate. That is God's prerogative, not yours. And friends, we have to be very careful when our judgments do exceed our experience, when our scrutiny exceeds our sanctification, and when our opinion goes beyond what is warranted that we are in danger of stepping into this error of the Corinthians. Several years ago, my seminary professor, Steve Brown, he was professor of preaching, known to some of you, uh, no doubt. He's preached here on many occasions in the past. He was asked to fill in for a pastor who had been dismissed from his congregation. The pastor was a good man. He had come in after a tenure of a very long-standing pastor who had begun a church. And so it was a very difficult position for this new pastor, and things did not go well. Finally, at the end of it, he was released from that call, and Steve was asked to come in and preach. Steve is known as the humorous funny guy, and so they thought that's what they were going to get. Steve stepped into the pulpit his first sermon when he was asked to come to the church. He read a passage, and then he said, I'm going to tell you a story. He said there was a man sitting at an intersection where there was a red light. The light turned green and yellow and red. And then once again, the cycle began again. Green, yellow, and red. And the man did not go. Green, yellow, red. Multiple times, green, yellow, red. And the traffic began to back up. People were honking their horns and beginning to get agitated and in a frenzy. Green, yellow, red. One final time. And someone leans out their window and yells at the driver and says, What shade of green are you waiting for. The congregation giggled like you did, and then Steve looked at them, and he said, that's the question for you. No one was laughing. Steve went and sat down, perhaps the shortest sermon they'd ever heard. But friends, this is the kind of mess that we can get ourselves into. When we start boasting in human standards and we use superficial evaluation on ministry and when we're chasing after cultural things that we think are important and we're not allowing the gospel to critique those things and rework the grid through which we understand gospel ministry, we'll end up in a mess, a hot mess, just like what is playing out here where the Corinthians are judging the Apostle Paul, a man who's given his whole life to the gospel, his health and well-being. He ends up being a martyr himself. But this is what can happen. But the second thing that we see here about what it means to go beyond what is written, that we minimize grace. This is what it looks like. We become arrogant and ungrateful. Verses 6 through 8 is where Paul highlights this. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That is his real chief concern, that they not be puffed up and favoring Apollos against Paul. And then he asked two withering questions of the congregation. First in verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? People ask, well, what exactly is that question? What does that mean? Who sees anything different in you? The question could be reframed, on what grounds do you boast in this manner? 
Why do you think you have the ability to boast the way that you are? This is what Paul is going after. Who gave you the right to make such judgments? Because Paul is leveling them as proud and arrogant. He says it explicitly in verse 18, that you're arrogant and you're boasting. And who gave you the right to make that judgment? Who gave you the right to think that you're so great? No one did. You're not authorized to do so, is where Paul is heading with that rhetorical question. And then he asks the second question in verse 7. For who who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so first he was dealing with presumption. Now he's dealing with ingratitude. That the Corinthians had received everything from God, but they were acting entitled. And they were acting like they had won this stuff for themselves. And Paul has announced and told them and reminded them that they were set apart by God in Christ Jesus. Sanctified. Something definitive had happened. Not because of who they are. Not because they were smart. Paul actually says not many of you were wise. Not many of you were smart. Not many of you were educated. But God chose you as weak things. And Christ has become your wisdom. Christ has become your sanctification. Christ has become your righteousness. Christ has become your redemption. That's how he closes chapter 1. And Paul reminds them that there is no room for boasting. That God then gives gifts to his people. Something that we celebrate next week on Pentecost Sunday. But those gifts are not entitlements. They are not things that we work up ourselves. They come from God as well. And he's saying to the Corinthians, you've received all of this. Everything is yours because of Christ. Everything is yours because of Christ, but yet you're acting like it's yours. It's ridiculous. You're the person who's grown up on third base, and then as you trot across home plate, you act like you hit a home run. This is his critique of what's happening here in Corinth. What do you have that you did not receive? It's grace all the way. And the gospel offers us a different way. A different way of relating to one another. A different way of relating to God. Because when we live in such boastful kind of competition, we'll constantly be comparing ourselves to other people. And then we'll be judging other people in order to lower them, in order to elevate ourselves. And then we'll live on this crazy cycle where we'll meet somebody who's better than us, and then we'll go into depression and discouragement because they're better than us, and we're still living based on this comparison. That's where the cycles of human boasting get us. But rather, Paul offers a leveling critique, saying there's no room for boasting, that that is to go beyond what is written, that we're to recognize that we all live in a level plane in front of God, sinners who who deservedly have deserved God's righteous anger and wrath and judgment, but who've then been, been set free from that judgment and wrath because of what Christ has done for us. And so we're on equal footing and we stand as brothers and sisters in a congregation as equals. And so we don't try to separate from one another. We don't try to favor one over the other. We don't judge one and say, you're not worthy. And this is what's happening in Corinth and this is what happens in church when we fail to work out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the way that we do life together. And we become arrogant. We become ungrateful. Augustine one of my favorite theologians, 
wrote once about humility. This is what he said. When a certain rhetorician was asked what was the chief rule in eloquence, he replied, delivery. And they asked him, what was the second rule of eloquence? And he said, delivery. And what was the third rule of eloquence? And he said, delivery. And then Augustine writes this. He says, so if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, and third, I would always answer humility. It is humility and gratitude that fight against the arrogance and the presumption and the ingratitude. And friends, it's recognizing each day and each week of our lives that everything we have from God is a gift, that Christ is our wisdom, Christ our righteousness, Christ our sanctification, Christ our future redemption. Everything we have. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for divvying ourselves up, feeling superior to fellow Christians. The final thing that we see here, though, about going beyond what is written, what happens to us, is that we misconstrue the Christian life. You'll note this particularly in verses 8 through 13. It's the longest portion of the passage. But in verse 8, Paul uses irony and rhetoric to go after the Corinthians. He's attempting to break up the stony ground that they look in the mirror and see themselves, that they have an accurate self-perception. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. What exactly is going on here? There's a current in Stoic and Cynic philosophy that talked about two things, that through wisdom, that the person who adhered to wisdom was able to rule and be mastered by nothing, and so you could become a king despite not being one. And so this is what Paul is referring to, is the particular corruption of the teaching that was taking place. And so he says, you already have all you want, already you have become rich, already you have begun to rule. And they would also refer to being rich by wisdom, not, not physically rich with money, but rich because you have this wisdom that separates you and detaches you from the world. And this was that synchronizing process syncretizing process where the gospel was being met up with Greco-Roman philosophy and being corrupted. And so the result of this was that they wanted to be like Greco-Roman philosophers, and this is why they couldn't recognize Paul. He was a man who worked with his hands. He looked like a slave. He was probably beaten and bruised and had a very broken body because of the beatings that he endured for the sake of Christ. And they didn't find pride in that. They found it embarrassing. Why would you want to be allied with him? Let's go with Apollos, who's eloquent and well-spoken and a fabulous preacher. That's what took place. And so in verse 10, Paul says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And do you see what's happened because of their human boasting and because of what they valued? is the whole Christian life has now been turned inside out and upside down. They've gotten it all backwards. And this is what happens to us when we adopt our own wisdom and our own standards and we import them into the Christian church, is we get it all wrong. And we are the last to see it. And that it takes some biting irony and sometimes getting hit in the nose and really need 
in order to understand how wrong we have gone. And so Paul comes after the Corinthians in a very loving way. Several years ago, I was talking with a young man who had grown up in the church but been somewhat of a nominal Christian. And he was entering into a season of spiritual renewal and revival, and it was, it was awesome to witness because he was coming alive at what it, what it meant to be made right with God through Jesus. And there was gratitude emerging and excitement and some newfound obedience. And he was particularly zealous in evangelism. And he was giving himself wholeheartedly to that. One of the things that began to happen, though, is as he has the spiritual renewal, there was a growing sense of self-righteousness at the same time. In one of our conversations over a series of months, he became very critical of the institutional church. And he said, well, Chuck, you know, just the church is just empty and nominal and lazy and, and fat, and people don't really believe, and they're not really engaged, and they're not putting sin to death. They're not taking it seriously, going out and evangelizing. And I asked him to consider what the New Testament said about the reality of the church that Jesus loved, that he loved places like Corinth, he loved places like Christ's church, despite all of our faults. He's committed to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that it is about grace, and that ultimately he loves someone like me. And I was trying to get him to draw that intuitive distance with that comment to say, and he loves somebody like you. It was a few weeks later I received an emergency phone call from this young guy. And he said, Chuck, I've gotten myself in trouble. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I had some behaviors on the Internet that I've not told you about. And something was brought onto video and was made public. And I'm exposed. All during this time, been castigating people on Facebook for their laziness as Christians. And now here it was. His sin writ large made known. And friends, it was all because he had constructed a wisdom. He had imported some understanding of the Christian life from somewhere beyond the Bible. He had gone beyond what is written, and he had set up some human standards that were actually fairly attainable in his own interpretation of them. But suddenly it all came crashing down. It all just was pulled away. And this was God's grace and God's mercy for him. It was a gentle reproof and discipline to bring him back in line. But this is what happens is that we misconstrue, misconstrue the Christian life when we adopt other wisdoms, that we mess it all up and we get it upside down. We're calling people hypocrites, and the truth is we're the hypocrite. We're the one who's out of line. And this is what Paul's doing here, and he's warning us about those features that we're to rely upon grace and look to grace and to know the grace of God, to allow that grace to set us free and then to take up our responsibilities to God, knowing that those are going to be imperfectly fulfilled as we make our way to the great and last day. And so, friends, Paul wants to relieve us of a burden. He wants to relieve us of the burden of not going beyond what's written. It tears things up. Not only does it lead you into doctrinal compromise, mostly it creates very practical compromises in the life of the church. It leads to boasting in which we bring superficial standards into the church to evaluate gospel ministry. We end up minimizing grace. 
and we start puffing up ourselves and thinking that we are important and we don't have an accurate self-perception, and then we misconstrue the Christian life, and we end up being poor and weak witnesses of what it really means to live as a dependent and humble Christian. This is what it looks like to go beyond what's written. Let's not do it. Let's embrace a better way. Let's pray. Father, we know our capacities, that we are like these Corinthians, and that we too can import all kinds of cultural things, meld those together with Jesus, and come up with our own gospel, that we can boast, that we can create our own standards, that we're all prone to this. But Lord, with the help of your Spirit, we can walk in a manner pleasing to you, so we ask that you would free us to do so, that we know what it is to be gospel-loving people, that we know what it is to apply the standards of the gospel across every area of life, and especially when it comes to church life. Set us free to do this, that we remain inside what is written. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Stand and sing with us.